0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network.
1: Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into AOA here today. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Coffee cup is full. We're ready for uh, some good conversations here on today's program. Coming up, we are going to Look a little bit at farm succession planning. We're going to have a conversation with Mike Downey from Farm Financial Strategies in segment two. Looking forward to that. In segment three, we'll run down the latest ag economy barometer for the month of December. Dr. Jim Mintert with Purdue University will join us to go through the numbers. And then at the end of the show, we're going to have a conversation with the CEO of the American Peanut Council, Richard Owens. We don't talk a lot about peanuts here on the program, so I thought it would be good to get Richard Owens on the show and update us on some of their priorities as we enter into 2024. So all that more is coming up here on today's AOA. First up, though, let's dive into what's going on in the market trade. Joining us now, Mike Zuzalo with Global Commodity Analytics. Mike, Happy New Year to you and yours. Thanks for joining us here on AOA today. Hope you're doing well.
2: Right back at you, Jesse. Nice to talk to you again in a brand new calendar year.
1: Brand new calendar year. You know, I think about new year, new me, new year, new markets, maybe not so much. Uh, there's a, there's definitely a lot going on uh, in terms of this market trade here as we enter into 2024, isn't there, Mike? Yeah,
2: 2023 headaches continue to follow us and, uh, and, and lead us at this point. Most part at this point, I think that 2024 trend here, In the start of the year, Jesse, is continuing where we left off in in late 2023 for the grains, especially in the soybeans, because we got a mini Santa Claus rally in the wheat market. We saw nothing in terms of Santa Claus. One of my clients said Santa Claus must have gotten stuck in the chimney when it came to the corn market. And I think that set up with the weather shifting a bit, um, the, the pulling out of the weather premium with the wetter South American weather especially in the soybeans. And, you know, we're getting very close to the soybean October low of 12.50 and a half. And that's not just an October low. That's the 2023 low. If that were to be violated, that would be the lowest since December 2021. So we can see the weather premium being pulled out of beans. We're also, as a side note, starting to try and encourage more new crop corn acres with that bean corn ratio, if you ask me. Well,
1: and thinking about that, I know we're going to get some updates here this month. I know we got a big WASDE report coming up next week. That's going to kind of kick off this new marketing year here, Mike. But, man, oh, man, uh, you you bring up maybe trying to buy more corn acres. Uh, I I think with the weather in South America, plus we're we're watching some things on the outside markets that could drive us here. We have uh, some weather coming up potentially in the U.S. here uh this weekend and the next week there's uh, there, there's a few things that are are kind of kind of come together here it feels like here over the next uh, couple of weeks ahead mike
2: yeah i feel like that the 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 january 12th crop reports more like a steam boiler that hadn't had any steam let out of it as we get closer and closer and closer to this report on the 12th in terms of a lot of data <clears throat> the market in a very negative supply negative demand mindset in other words suggesting that we have a lot more supply than we need, not enough demand uh, than we need. And this is led by our leader, which I call our leader, the soft red wheat and the crude oil market. The soft red wheat, Jesse, on a weekly momentum basis, some of the numbers that I track, it has not seen positive momentum since February. So giving an example of how I think the black box traders and the algo funds work this market, those sentiment indicators Are showing continuations of a negative bias. And I think there's a lot of data, a lot of South American data, and maybe even U.S. data that maybe will catch them uh, on the wrong side of the market. I think that's an an important part of what we see here as we close out January is that January 12th report.
1: You mentioned crude oil. We've been seeing crude oil uh, rally a little bit here so far this week. What's your connection with crude oil and the grains right now?
2: Well, this is one of those geopolitical situations where we we can honestly say and pretty easily say, I think without much disagreement, that we've probably got the worst geopolitical situation in the Middle East, uh, at least since 2006. I would put it probably at 20-year levels at this stage of the game, and yet we're dancing only about $5 away from the major lows in WTI. And I think this is where the market, again, like the wheat, um, has no appreciation for the potential supply constraints. Right now, the trade thinks that higher freight rates and tensions are just gonna increase the cost of commodities and that equals lower demand. History would suggest the exact opposite, that we have tighter supplies, which means that's gonna increase the the prices because the demand side is not being fed. So that I think is the major 2024 battle line. And i put crude oil and wheat right there, neck and neck as leaders in terms of the trends for the grain markets in 2024. I've been asking this question
1: here this week. Are you seeing much uh, farmer selling happening here in this first week of the new year as we look at regional basis pops and, and more? Are you seeing any of that movement right now, especially on the corn market, Mike?
2: Yeah, I think we are. And I, I, several clients have been calling in this week wanting to either lock in previous basis contracts because of the break in, in the futures and, and looking to buy it back on paper, um, probably going to do that for most of them as we get into that January 12th report or the week of or a few days before. Um, not so much on the soybeans, but I don't think producers really need to sell a lot of beans because I think that's where they generated their cash flow and were much more eager to sell off the combine and the soybeans. So, yes, to answer your question, um, the, the basis has attracted some selling. Um, talked to a client in Owensboro, Kentucky yesterday, and he said he was about 15, 20 trucks deep at the Ohio River. So that pretty good number of, uh, of bushels being sold right now, I think, Jesse.
1: Mike, wanna ask you a livestock trade too before we uh, wrap up the segment here. I know we got to, as I alluded to, some potential winter weather coming through the Central Plains here this weekend and next week. Uh, could that have some impact on this cattle market?
2: You know, it seems like the weather is like Las Vegas right now because we've got the GFS model putting a major snowstorm, if not two, in the in the, in the areas of the feedlots of Kansas. The European model is putting it in the major uh, calving areas of Nebraska. It's going to be a tough, tough winter if these models end up being right because this cold is coming in. And if we're going to see the market go higher anywhere, I think it's in the feeder cattle market because of this winter weather, if it materializes. Managed money net short is the biggest since late January of 2023. So we're almost at one year highs as far as the managed money being on the short side of this market could give us quite an explosive type market, I think.
1: Well, and live and feeder cattle futures had a good start to this week in the new year, but we've been pretty quiet ever since. So I wonder if this market may be settling out until we see what happens with this winter storm possibly.
2: I think that's 100% right. And I also like the fact that the hogs are bouncing nicely today. That's, that's one of the major negative forces in this market in 2024 when it comes to cattle and being held back by the hog market. So if we're unwinding cattle hog spreads, bring it on. That just helps us in the long term, if you ask me.
1: Mike, uh, any final thoughts for us here real quick? Anything you want folks to uh, think about here as we head into the weekend?
2: Yeah, I just posted a new product services for 2024 on the website. Also a special subscription rate for three months to give you an idea of what we do at our firm, our independent analysis, globalcomresearch.com. That's globalcom with two M's research.com. Take a look at that if you don't mind.
1: Fantastic. Mike Zuzalo, Global Commodity Analytics. Always good to talk with you, my friend. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you again soon.
2: I'll do it, and you too, Jesse.
1: Thank you very much. Mike Zuzalo there with Global Commodity Analytics. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about farm succession planning and more with Mike Downey. We'll be back with more here on AOA right after this.
3: If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect and may save your home. Call for closure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701.
1: Trains are everywhere. You should always expect one, even on private property. Only cross tracks at designated crossings that fit your equipment. If you don't fit, don't commit. Whatever you're operating, secure your load, raise your equipment, and avoid getting stuck or causing damage. Minimize distractions. Remember, noisy equipment drowns out the sound of a train. Unless you're crossing, always keep a safe distance from train tracks. Look, listen, live. For more info, go to oli.org.
4: Now. We tend not to think about now. We dream about tomorrow, relive yesterday but sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Victory over cancer is in front of us. Right now, cancer research is saving lives. Cancer research funded by the V Foundation is leading to new discoveries and new treatments and ultimately, one day, victory over cancer. Give to the V Foundation. Right now, One out of every two men and one out of every three women will get cancer in their lifetime. Now is your moment. You may save someone you love. 100% of your donation goes directly to game-changing research. 100%. Donate at v.org. Because today's cancer research is tomorrow's victory.
5: Don't give up. Don't ever give up.
0: information America's farmers and ranchers need AOA
1: now back to Jesse Allen welcome back here to AOA as we continue on today's program we want to talk a little bit about farm succession planning there's a a lot that goes into that and it's a conversation that I know sometimes folks don't necessarily want to uh, start in some cases, because it can be a tough conversation at times. And so we want to dive in and get some thoughts about this as we enter into a new year. Joining us now, he's a co-owner of Next Generation Ag Advocates. He's also an associate with Farm Financial Strategies. Mike Downey is with us here today on the program. Mike, thank you uh, for making the time to join us today. Hope you're doing well.
6: Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you having me on.
1: Well, let's jump in here first. And as I kind of alluded to, uh, sometimes that uh, that succession planning conversation can be a tough one for some folks. Uh, as you look at that aspect of it, let, let's just start there. What are some of the biggest things you hear when you talk to folks in terms of succession planning on the farm? What are some of the biggest concerns or what are some of the biggest um, positives that you hear out of those uh, initial conversations, Mike?
6: sure you bet well you know when you just take a step back and look at the the need and the uh, demographics the age of the farmer and landowners estimated to be the oldest in history and it's unique to think about because i don't know that i've met a farmer yet that hasn't told me that they would like to see the farm pass down and stay in the family yet it's such a difficult subject for so many to talk about and uh, you know that's a whole nother conversation we could unpack but certainly uh, Farming is just, you know, it's more than an occupation. It's, you know, a way of life as a lot of your listeners can appreciate. So sometimes that's uh, more difficult to talk about. And, but I think a lot of the uh, common questions we're getting right now, just overall with family farm transitions, what's going on with the farmland values and prices. And it just puts more stress on Uh, transitions as they occur from one generation to the next between Mm -hmm. family members and of course the whole uh, fair versus equal and equal isn't always fair uh, type of conversation and just figuring out what that is.
1: That's a great point you bring up here and and I want to stick with that for a second uh, with just the overall farmland values. I mean you know all through last year I don't know how many headlines I saw, you know, record land sale in Iowa, record land sale in Iowa, record land sale in Missouri, record land sale in Illinois. You know, you you, you get where I'm going with this. The cost of farmland and the rising cost of farmland, I have to think, uh, just makes some of those succession planning conversations that much harder because the the dollar amounts are that much bigger, right, Mike?
6: Yeah, then you throw in another ingredient with uh, interest rate factor mm-hmm. that are, you know maybe twice what they were just a year ago and uh and that's you know one uh, concern we have where some family farms maybe a uh, a potential uh, fly in the ointment is not having a true understanding of what those economics are you know and that's where we really encourage folks uh let's just really play that out you know and and what cuz that sometimes helps folks come to a process to uh you know have in their transition plan to help you know as there are potential buyouts between family
1: well and you mentioned this too just the age of the american farmer there's there's a lot of uh, folks who are, are getting up there in age still going hard on the farm or ranch and you know thinking about uh, that transition here in the next say five to ten years to someone younger in their family and, and trying to keep that operation in the family Uh, But I I know in a lot of cases, uh, having a plan, of course, is the big, big emphasis here. And sometimes uh, we don't always have that plan in place. Uh, You know, something written down on a napkin, you know, at the coffee table is not a succession plan. Right, Mike?
6: Sure. And I'll throw in there, too, uh, you know, as a general rule, our uh, legal and tax community practitioners and a lot of this is uh, from just our tax laws would incentivize actually folks to to wait to do nothing. And because um, our current tax laws, quite frankly, incentivize that with uh, getting a new cost basis of assets as you inherit them and so forth. But um, I would say for a lot of family farm uh, that, w- that we work with, that isn't always the number one priority. So if we can sit down and figure out something that we can put in place today that. There is certainty um, that's going to carry out as we wish. That's uh, the type of conversations we're definitely having.
1: What is, say, as we're sitting down to, to make one of those plans, what's maybe like the first one, two, three things that we really want to establish in terms of at least getting started with a succession plan or updating a succession plan that hasn't been touched in quite some time?
6: I. Uh, I actually like to begin with the end in mind, you know, in a perfect world, if we could wave our magic wand, what's this look like as it transitions to the next generation? And we just kind of brainstorm through that. And, you know, historically, a lot of family farms have been divided at each generation between family members. You know, can we truly afford to do that and expect those in our family that are going to continue to farm to still be viable if we split up the farm? And if we are, you know, what are the processes to, you know, uh, preserve some assurances you might want to leave for them to lease the ground or maybe buy it if it's ever offered for sale and those those types of things. But uh, we're certainly seeing more and more consider keeping the family farm together, you know, and then brainstorming structures to help complement that. Uh, or if there's certain farms who want to transition to our farming heirs, you know, maybe with the home farm or a farm with a building site with a lot of legacy to it you know maybe there's options we can just uh you know uh look at doing that today so we know that there's some certainty in place
1: and there's obviously a lot of different structures that could be taken in terms of the farm and uh you know i think about especially you brought up some of the tax implications you know whether we're talking uh, llc's or s corps or c corps or whatever the case may be there's There's a lot of those things to figure out, too. And in some cases, maybe some changes could be done uh, depending on the type of succession plan you're trying to put together, right?
6: Yeah, and a lot of misconceptions with a lot of those terms you mentioned with trusts and LLCs, those are, you know, some of those are becoming very popular for valid reasons. We are using those more and more. Um, But we also, you know, use some more traditional strategies that you don't see, uh, you know, you know, how many folks have bought a farm using a traditional sale contract Um, you don't Mm -hmm. see you don't see that happen too often you know a lot of farms today, or the ones that you mentioned earlier they're the ones you hear about sold by auction or a public venue but uh, we still you know use uh private sale contracts a lot and family farm planning too that has you know a lot of cases some win-win benefits to them
1: What's maybe the biggest thing as folks are are looking here at a new year in front of us and they, they're maybe getting ready to start this uh, conversation here, what's one of the biggest things you, you want folks to remember as they kind of take a, a broad look at where things stand here with the ag economy and more in 2024, what would you say to folks to kind of keep in mind if they're getting ready to have some of these conversations?
6: Sure, I think... Uh, more and more I'm talking to realize that something has to give, you know, if you want to really have your farm pass to the next generation and have success with everything occurring with the farm economics, like we've talked about land values, interest rates, and so forth. Uh, a lot of our tax law incentivize you waiting to do nothing. You know, all of these things kind of add up together that, uh, you know, really having understanding for those and that, uh, you know, um, maybe coming up with a process within your own family to value, uh, put a practical value for your family, because that not necessarily what it may be for farms being sold down the road, you know, at a public venue
1: well mike uh really great thoughts appreciate the conversation here today give us a plug real quick if folks uh want to reach out with you or reach out to you and and work with you and uh, maybe get some questions answered uh, tell us how folks can uh get in touch with you mike
6: yeah appreciate that i think probably the best place is uh, our website that's nextgenag.us which we are in the process of revamping but uh You'll learn a lot more about our story, which we didn't get into. Uh, We also are working with a lot more transitions between non-related families, um, connecting non-related folks uh, that we're seeing more and more of transition like that out there in the industry, too.
1: Fantastic. Well, again, uh, nextgenag.us, right, Mike?
6: Yes, nextgenag.us.
1: You can head there and you can get much more information. And, uh, Mike, really do uh, appreciate the time joining us here today on AOA. And we'll have to uh, get you back on the program again soon and uh, have another conversation for now, though. Thanks so much, and uh, have a great rest of your week.
6: Yeah, thank you, Jesse.
1: Mike Downey, Next Generation Ag Advocates. Again, find them online, nextgenag.us for more information. All right, coming up next here on the program, we are going to take a look at the December Ag Economy Barometer from Purdue University and the CME Group. Dr. Jim Mintert heads up that survey from Purdue University. We'll talk to him next here on AOA.
7: Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free, and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney advertising. William Stepacker Jr. is the attorney responsible
8: for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Overnight volume was extremely weak with corn and soybeans pausing a bit after fresh moves lower yesterday. However, they are sinking again this morning while wheat continues its decline as well. Wheat futures are lower on favorable weather in the U.S. southern plains, where hard red winter wheat is overwintering. Storms are rolling into the southern plains, where up to 5 inches of snow are expected to fall in the next two days. The moisture will be well-timed in southwestern Kansas and the Oklahoma and Texas Panhandles, which have been dry the past week. Rain and snow have been mostly plentiful in the region this growing season, and it appears more precipitation is headed to the area. Snow is also in store in the next 10 days for the Black Sea region, which will offer wheat there a blanket of protection. Now in Kansas, the biggest producer of winter wheat, about 43% of the hard red crop in the state, was in good or excellent condition at the end of 23. Another 36% was in fair condition, while the remainder was poor or very poor. We did see an average of 2.7 inches of rain fell in Oklahoma last month, with about 3.4 inches recorded in west-central counties. Now, while no crop rating was given, U.S. Drought Monitor data shows that 22% of the state was suffering from drought conditions, that's as of December 26th. That is down from 47% three months earlier and 90% a year ago. Crude oil is also on the mend today, but the commodities are decidedly not in focus this week. As the equity traders are parsing the Fed minutes released from yesterday afternoon... Now, world equity markets are mostly higher today. Despite a relatively poor day yesterday, the 10-year note briefly traded above 4% on Wednesday as traders continue to be worried that the reality of Fed actions this year is likely to be less dovish than had been priced in during the rally in the fourth quarter of 2023. The VIX is back to trading above 14 this morning. The dollar index is down to about 102, and crude oil prices are about 30, 40 cents higher. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet.
9: In Iraq, our truck hit a roadside bomb, I had about 16 surgeries on my hand so that I could regain function. And when I came home, I needed a new roof due to a storm and my electrical was deemed unsafe and I was about to lose homeowner's insurance as well. I didn't really know where to go in order to get help. And so I applied for Operation Homefront Critical Financial Assistance Program. They've really been a blessing. Operation Homefront is the safety net. A lot of veterans, they fall through the cracks sometimes and Operation Homefront, they catch us. It's been a blessing to us. It's a blessing to other veteran families. And it's good to know that when we come home, there are people who are there that care about us and want to see us do well and want to see us succeed and we feel it and we appreciate that. I would say you guys are angels behind closed doors. Visit OperationHomeFront.org to learn more.
0: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen.
1: And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America. Right now, we want to go through the December Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer numbers. Joining us for a conversation, he is the director for the Center for Commercial Agriculture and a professor in the Department of Ag Economics at Purdue University. He heads up the Ag Economy Barometer. Dr. Jim Minter is with us. And, uh, Jim, great to catch up with you again. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Happy New Year to you and all your listeners as well. Well, let's take a look at these December numbers, and it looks like farmer sentiment stayed relatively stable in the December ag economy barometer. Talk about that a little bit. Not much of a change.
5: Yeah, not much of a change on a month-to-month basis. I think the barometer itself was uh, down one point compared to a month earlier and 12 points below a year ago. So on a month-to-month basis, that's really no change. A similar kind of story with respect to the current condition index and the future expectation index. I think current conditions and future expectations were both down a point, which from a statistical perspective is essentially no change. Um, but I think it's it's a little more interesting if you start thinking about maybe what took place over the course of the fall quarter and mm-hmm. maybe even a little farther back than that. And, You know, I kind of point to the Farm Financial Performance Index. Um, That's the one where we ask people about their farms financial situation this year versus a year ago. And that index has changed over the last few months. If you go back to May, that index was down all the way to 76. This month it was at 97. So that's a 21 point move going back to the spring. And if you go back to the beginning of fall harvest, which is probably a good point of demarcation for a lot of folks, It's up about 11 points in uh, September. That was at a reading of 86. Here in December, again, it was 97. So an 11 point improvement over the course of the fall. And I think that's probably pretty reflective of what happened with respect to yields this fall for corn and soybean producers were better than expected, particularly when they make the comparison to what they thought was gonna happen when it was so dry last summer and people were very concerned about crop conditions and what the yields might be. And I think as combines rolled this, rode, uh, rode this fall, uh, people were pleasantly surprised at what the yields uh, turned out to be. Uh, that was kind of borne out by the USDA uh, crop reports. Um, and correspondingly, uh, income levels this fall wound up being a little better than what people expected. And again, that was of course, uh, corroborated by USDA's report, I think at the end of uh, November, when they updated their farm financial uh, estimates for 2023. And if you compare their estimate at the end of November to the estimate they released in late summer, um, I think in inflation adjusted terms, it was up about $10 billion. So farm income in 23 is still well below what it was in 2022, but stronger than expected in late summer. And I think it's important to point out that although it's lower than 2022, 2022 was by a wide margin the best farm income year ever. So farm income in 23 is still pretty good. And I think that Farm Financial Performance Index is kind of picking that up
1: yeah i think so too and i i think largely there through that month of december you mentioned you know just how things looked after the combines rolled and more and you know largely through the holiday season i think really you know with things staying stable here for the most part uh, a lot of farmers just kind of taking a little cautious optimism maybe through the month of december through the holidays and into uh, the new year here jim yeah it
5: was just a little more positive than what we thought earlier in the year and so i think People are still concerned about what might take place in 2024. You know, we ask people every month uh, in 2023, we ask them, Is, looking ahead to next year, what are your biggest concerns for the your farming operation the upcoming year? And people are still worried about high input cost. They're not as worried about it, or at least not as many are worried about it at the end of the year as they were at the beginning of the year. And I think that's kind of an interesting story at the beginning of the year. of the people in our survey said that that was their number one concern. At the end of the year, that had dropped back to 31%. And correspondingly, people are worried about what I'd characterize as a more traditional concern uh, at the end of the year than they were at the beginning of the year. So at the beginning of 2023, only 16% of the people in the survey said that lower crop and or livestock prices was their top concern for the upcoming year. At the end of the year, that had risen to 26%. So roughly one out of four people in the survey said one of their top concerns was lower crop and livestock prices. And I'd characterize that as a more traditional concern for producers. If you think about it, it's still a little bit upside down with more people worried about high input cost than they are worried about low crop and livestock prices. I would contend that if we had an opportunity to ask that question over the last 30 years, for example, month after month i would expect lower crop and livestock prices to be the top concern that hasn't quite happened yet but we're starting to get back to a little more normal pattern
1: yeah and that's a great point you bring up it's especially as we roll this calendar to 2024 here jim i'm hearing a lot of the same from folks uh, you know that i talk to in passing they look at you know where core prices sit right now in the fours and you know, look at soybeans backing off here and just uh, you know the way cattle have really kind of pulled back here towards the end of 2023. So uh, I would agree with you. It just feels like we're, we're kind of shifting things back to more of that, you know, keeping a, a much bigger eye or bigger emphasis on what's happening in the commodity and livestock markets right now.
5: Yeah, those are more traditional concerns, and and they are very valid concerns because people are worried about a cost price squeeze. So that's why they're still expressing concerns about high input cost. You know, you mentioned the prices. You know, one of the things that people are worried about is just how high these break evens are. Uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Michael Langemeyer, maintains our crop uh, cost return budgets here at Purdue. And we were taking a look at those recently. And if you compare break-evens projected for 2024 versus 2023, the good news is those break-evens for both corn and soybeans are lower than they were in 23, but they are still much higher than they were before the pandemic got underway. And just as a comparison, I think uh, estimated break-evens for uh, corn here in Indiana on high yield productivity, which is uh, roughly 220 bushels per acre in our budgets, Full cost budget, so includes land rental charges and a return for all those owned resources. Full cost budget break even about $5 a bushel on corn. If you go back to 2020, that same budget process yielded a break even of about $4. So about a 25% increase since 2020. People are worried about that. And I think that our sentiment index is picking that up in the sense that those high break evens increase risk. And I think farmers are well aware of that, and it's a it's a concern.
1: I know as well, you guys uh, always throw in kind of an ad hoc question each month and uh, ask something uh, a little bit different each and every month with the uh, barometer. And I know looking at uh, the December report, uh, looking at the rate of inflation for consumer items during the next 12 months, I find it interesting that a lot of folks are in the uh, – 2 to 4% camp here. They think that's kind of where things are going to stand, it looks like. Talk about that a little bit.
5: Yeah, and if if you look at it, there's really been a change when we asked the same question a year ago. And and the bucket's changed a little bit because the world has changed a little bit, but we asked the same question, what do you expect the rate of inflation for consumer items to be during the next 12 months? This month's survey, as you point out, 70% of the people in the survey think inflation will be less than 4%. Um, only 13% of the people in the survey think it'll exceed 6%. If you contrast that with a year ago, a year ago, roughly half of all the people in the survey said they expected inflation to be 6% or higher. So inflation expectations have ratcheted down quite a bit. um, And that's consistent with what the Fed's been saying uh, going ahead. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that shakes out. but still a, a different outlook. And you know, the related question we asked was, what do you think is gonna to happen to interest rates? And I guess one way to characterize the responses to the interest rates is our people in the survey, in one way you could look at it and say, they don't know, right? And, and the reason I say that is the choices we gave them were one to 2% lower, zero to 1% lower, no change in interest rates, zero to 1% higher and one to 2% higher. And they, we, we basically got roughly a fifth of the people in each one of those buckets, except one to 2% lower, which was about a little over 10%. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. However, if you kind of aggregate those a little bit, about a third of the people in the survey said they expect interest rates to decline in 2024. And that is different than what we were getting a year ago. So people are feeling a little bit better about what's gonna take place with respect to interest rates, but there is a lot of uncertainty. You know, we still got... Uh, what, 21% said 1% to 2% higher in the upcoming year, uh, 44 or 43%, I said, expect at least somewhat of an increase in interest rates. So uh, a lot of uncertainty there with respect to interest rates, but certainly a better uh, view of what might be going on with respect to inflation
1: yeah yeah very very true folks can look through the full december report and of course check out uh, all the reports online ag.purdue.edu it's under the commercial ag section ag economy barometer you can also google ag economy barometer and be able to find it very easily jim uh, real quick before i run out of time i want to mention too i know uh, this friday you guys have the top farmer conference happening at purdue university looks like a great lineup for that conference uh, give us a plug for it real quick
5: Yeah, great. So the conference is Friday and you can still register for it. It's an in-person conference, but it's also offered online. And so for a lot of your listeners where, you know, West Lafayette, Indiana is not convenient, you can tap into this conference on Zoom um, just go to purdue.edu slash and you'll find the registration information. But, uh, we've got Jim Bullard speaking, uh, at opening the conference. Jim is the new Dean of the business school here at Purdue, but listeners should know that prior to coming to Purdue, he was the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. So, uh, it's a plus for us to have him on the program. Uh, we've got Scott Irwin from the University of Illinois. Scott, of course, is part of the farm doc team at Illinois and probably the foremost expert in the country on what's going on with respect to biofuels and a lot of interest with respect to what's going to happen in the soybean market uh, with respect to biofuels. Scott's the expert on that. Brad Lubin's going to talk from Nebraska, is going to talk about uh, the ag policy outlook and uh, Chad Hart, uh, one of the top crop outlook specialists in the country is going to speak about the longer term outlook, a little bit of focus on short term, but really focused on what the longer term outlook and so people can use that to generate some profit projections. So. Purdue.edu slash commercialag will find you at, uh, at our website and uh, all the details on the conference and how to register are there. And, and again, you can register and watch it on Zoom if that fits your schedule better.
1: Fantastic. With that, Dr. Jim Mintert with Purdue okay. University Center for Commercial Agriculture. Thanks for joining us this month on AOA. We'll talk to you next month. Great. Thanks, Jess. Back with more here on AOA right after this.
0: Teachers are dynamic leaders, shaping a new generation. They bring a variety of perspectives from diverse backgrounds, innovating how they teach to prepare students for our fast-changing world. Achieving this takes skill and expertise. They're tireless explorers, creatively discovering a universe of solutions, telling stories, experimenting, inspiring, mentoring, Connecting cultures and connecting with each other. Leading by example. Experience the unique joy of helping students thrive. Teaching is a journey that shapes lives. Are you ready to begin? Explore teaching at teach.org, a campaign supported by the U.S. Department of Education, teach.org,
1: and one million teachers of color. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Charlie Carter, product quality and additives manager for CHS Refined Fuels Commercial Supply, about how the right fuel will keep equipment running in the winter. Charlie, what happens to diesel fuel and equipment when temperatures drop, and why does that matter?
10: Standard number two diesel fuel generally does not fare well in cold temperatures. Diesel fuel can form crystals and clog filters and fuel lines, and prolonged freezing temps can cause engines to not operate properly. That can basically lead to that dreaded downtime that we all hate. So uh, it's really important to take precautions to prevent these issues from occurring, especially in cold weather conditions.
1: Charlie, when should farmers switch their diesel blends?
10: Yeah, so every situation is going to be slightly different and somewhat temperature dependent. So it's important that you work with a knowledgeable fuel supplier who has a grasp on the diesel characteristics in their geography. With that being said, you should be blending your tanks to a winter blend when temperatures are right around the freezing point or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's important to blend early and when the fuel is at least 10 degrees above the cloud point of the fuel or it won't mix well together.
1: When you're thinking about cost and performance, what's the best way to determine the best winter fuel blend?
10: So you will need to decide really what's best for your individual operation and what temperature you expect to be able to operate your equipment in. So if your operation relies on your equipment needing to be up in those harshest climates, you're undoubtedly going to need to invest in a diesel blend that's going to meet those needs. You're going to run the risk of being stranded on the side of the road, unable to perform your critical tasks. So it's best to discuss the specific needs with your fuel supplier as they're going to be able to deliver the high-quality Cenex fuels at the correct blends for optimal performance and peace of mind.
1: Well, thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com.
8: Did you know that pork is the world's most consumed meat? Pork comprises over one third of all meat consumed. Pigs were domesticated over 9,000 years ago in 7,000 BC, and there are more than 180 species of pigs. Why pork? Well, it's not just because everybody loves bacon. Historically speaking, pork is a very easy meat to preserve via smoking, curing, or salting. Not only could it keep well before refrigeration, but it also tastes great under various preservation tactics and adaptable to a variety of flavors, spices, and dishes across different cultures and regions there are twice as many pigs as there are people in denmark did you also know that china is the world's lead pork producer in 2020 they produced an impressive 41.13 million metric tons of the meat which equates to almost 91 billion pounds so the next time you dive into that plate of bacon know that pork is the world's most consumed meat these farm facts brought to you by the american ag network
0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now
1: back to Jesse Allen. And thanks for sticking with us here on AOA Today, Agriculture of America. As we continue the program, we want to learn more about some of the priorities here in the new year ahead for the American Peanut Council. Joining us for conversation, he is the president and CEO of the American Peanut Council. Richard Owen is with us on the program today. Richard, it's great to talk with you. Hope you're doing well.
11: I'm doing well. Happy New Year. It's great to be with you today.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. And I just want to kind of jump in. We don't get a chance to talk a lot about peanuts here on the program. Uh, I'm hoping we could change that for the future. Uh, but a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting things going on right now as we enter a new year. And I know just recently, uh, the APC, you guys welcomed the uh, continued suspension of uh, retaliatory tariffs on U.S. peanut butter from the European Union. Tell us a little bit more about that. Let's start there.
11: Okay. Um, The American Peanut Council uh, has three key pillars, uh, sustainability, um, research, and as you mentioned, uh, international markets. And so this recent development uh, we see is very good. Europe for us is the third largest market. And because of retaliatory tariffs that were put in place in 2021, our sales into Europe for peanut butter went from 22 million down to 1.4 million. Uh, It's allowed some other uh, exporting countries, such as Argentina, to go into that market. So we were pleased to see that the um, uh, relief is in place for uh, at least the next year and 15 months or so uh, to allow us to try to get that market back and increase our sales into, into Europe
1: fantastic Uh, it's a good thing to hear and i know too you you look at international markets as i was uh, looking through some things for the peanut council i know back in november i believe you guys took a a delegation to japan as well that i see right japan's the fifth largest market for us peanut exports richard
11: that's right japan is our fourth or fifth largest market depending on the year we did take a delegation of uh processors of growers Uh, manufacturers to Japan as a way to build uh, increased relationships with our uh, importers in that marketplace, as well as a chance to see what promotional activities are taking place for peanut butter. Um, uh, In that particular market, sports opportunities, if you think about eating peanuts at ball games, uh, that's an opportunity we see in that marketplace. Um, as well as an increase in peanut butter. Um, It's uh, it's an important market to us. We have uh, the majority of the market share, but we don't want to take anything for granted, and we want to look at uh, how we can do things innovatively in 2024 to make sure that we keep that market.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit more about uh, looking at 2024 here. What are some of the uh, priorities uh, on the trade front first? I know you highlighted kind of the three key pillars there. Let's just start with the trade side first, since we're talking about that. What are some of the priorities here as we look at this year ahead, Richard?
11: Well, priorities for us, particularly in the export markets, um, are to look at some of the emerging markets we think have opportunities to diversify from Mexico, Canada, Europe, Japan, which are our top four markets. Uh, We just completed an industry strategic plan around exports, and so we're gonna be looking at um, uh, South Asia in particular, uh, as well as Korea, uh, to see what the opportunities are to sell more, uh, both raw peanuts and peanut products into those markets. So we're pretty excited about uh, what that opportunity has for us uh, ahead and making sure that this entire supply chain sees some advantages of what we're doing in different places
1: you mentioned sustainability and I know that's such a hot topic uh, in agriculture it has been for uh, the last few years Uh, talk about some of the things that the uh, APC is doing in terms of sustainability and working with our uh, peanut growers across the country
11: well we know for one thing that peanuts uh, are actually a great sustainability story Uh, very low usage of fertilizer uh, if you look at the footprint of the water that it takes to grow peanuts versus uh, particularly some of the tree nuts, um, it's a very low uh, water footprint as well. Uh, it actually uh, keeps uh, carbon in, in, the, in the soil uh, for most of the year. So one of the things we're going to be doing in 24 is to tell the story um, to manufacturers, to users of our peanuts um, about the great um, sustainability story we have. The other key thing with sustainability is we have an online pro- platform where we've encouraged growers to go in and document over roughly 100 different questions the practices that they're taking. So over time, over the next three to five years, we'll be able to uh, generate reports that say um, uh, exactly uh, the, the growers that participate, exactly what their uh, measurements are for a number of sustainability metrics. We're excited about that. We're in year three of the program. And starting in year four and five, we'll be able to report out some of that information.
1: We're talking with the president and CEO of the American Peanut Council, Richard Owen, here today on AOA. Richard, uh, what other priorities lie ahead for APC here in 2024? Is there anything on the uh, legislative side with a farm bill or things like that? Or what are some of the other priorities that uh, you guys are looking at here this year?
11: Well, we don't specifically work on the Farm Bill, uh, Capitol Hill issues. Um, trade is where we focus our, a lot of our efforts and sustainability. The third pillar that I mentioned is around research, and we manage, uh, in addition to the research that we help to direct, we manage two other smaller organizations, the Peanut Research Foundation and the American Society for uh, Peanut Research and Education. Uh, uh, and those are a couple of the entities that really have stepped forward in the last few years. The Peanut Research Foundation, for example, mapped the genetic profile of the peanuts. We're now seeing some benefits on the uh, breeding side that are, are a result of that investment over the past 10 years. Uh, and we see more opportunities uh, in the future to uh, uh, just get ahead of the cycle uh, more quickly in research development and research um, progress that uh, we think can help move the industry forward, whether it's with seed, whether it's with uh, pesticide use or insecticide use, a variety of things that we think um, will make the U.S. peanut grower more competitive versus uh, some of the other international markets that we sell into.
1: Richard, I know folks want more information on what the American Peanut Council is doing. Peanutsusa.com. Have to think that's a great place to start, isn't it?
11: It's a great place to start, and we have information there for uh, consumers, for people in the trade that want to know more about statistics, uh, exactly what footprint looks like for peanuts in the marketplace. But, yes, mm-hmm. we'd encourage anybody to reach that, that uh, website, and uh, there's a place that they can ask us questions, and we're happy to respond when we can.
1: PeanutsUSA.com. With that, Richard Owen with the American Peanut Council. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate the time.
11: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: And that's gonna do it for AOA here today. Have a great rest of your day. I'm Jesse Allen, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.
12: Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted card to Patriotic Hearts, You'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted car. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section. When
9: dad injured his back, basketball star Torres ACL, opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them, just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful, pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting at homes across the country, and tragically, More than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets, anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal.